Welcome to On the Other Side, where we talk crypto, culture, and society, and explore how crypto might shape society and change how real humans live their actual lives. I am here with Jake Bruckman, who is the founder and CEO at CoinFund. Um, Jake, I'm very excited to have you on the show. Thanks, Chase. I'm very excited to be on the show because I've been a fan of your show for a long time. Thank you for having well, me. I so appreciate that. And I can't wait to dive in. I feel like you've been you've been throwing out some hot AI takes over the last couple of months. So I'm very excited <laughs> to do this episode. But before we even do that, maybe you can give a little bit of background on you, how you fell down the crypto rabbit hole and what you're doing and thinking about at CoinFund. Absolutely. Um, well, the background on me is that I am a technology guy. I'm an early adopter of technology. My mom and dad are both, you know, engineers. We had a computer in our house in like 1991. I learned to code when I was 14. Um, you know, things like that. Obviously, one of the technologies that I've adopted has been crypto pretty early. I learned about Bitcoin in 2011. And um, I started CoinFunds in 2015. CoinFund is a blockchain-focused investment firm. Today, we're about 30 folks, Boston, New York, and Miami. And we've been around for eight years, which is like 80,000 million years in blockchain years. <laughs> um, and we have worked with something like 150-plus uh, crypto projects across our like venture and liquid investing. Um, and I am a pretty technical person. I'm a, a, certainly the technical partner of the firm. Um, and I spent a lot of time in like the deep tech of decentralization technology. And of course, today we're going to talk about AI. So let me give a couple of kind of thoughts on that as well. Like I want to definitely caveat that, you know, of all the people that you could be talking about AI to, I'm certainly like not the most sophisticated AI person. Like I didn't study <laughs> AI in school. I didn't work in an AI company. But that being said, I do know enough math and computer science to be familiar with neural networks and how they work. And, you know, my job is to be an innovation technologist and follow disruptive tech. Uh, I have a lot of friends who work in the space. I'm also an investor uh, through coin funds in Sam Altman's other startup, which is WorldCoin, which we could talk about. Um, so I do have a bunch of context on AI, uh, not to mention that I've been play around with it pretty actively, you know, for the last year or two as these models have uh, grown bigger. So let me, uh, let me pause there. Yeah, I love that. And I think, um, I, I think you, to me, were someone who I wanted to have on the pod because first of all, I respect a lot of your thinking and, and um, understanding of where technologies are today and where they're going. Um, but also because I think this intersection of thinking about Web3 and AI is fascinating. And, and that's really what I want to touch on. Mm -hmm. But you had this tweet, which is really, I think, the, the grounding for this conversation, which is sort of like your stake in the ground on AI. So I want to like work through um, what you kind of outlined here as um, where you believe AI is going, what that means, and why crypto is going to be so important in that context. And so Great. I guess I'll, I'll read the first, this is a four-point thesis, and I guess I'll read the first one and we can dive into it and 
and unpack sort of each of these statements. And so the first statement that you make is, I think, LLMs, which is large language models for people who don't know. Um, I think LLMs innovation curve will lead to AGI, which is artificial generalized intelligence. So let's unpack mm -hmm. that a little bit first. Um, what's the thought here? And then we can dive into to what this means. Okay, so this is like the longstanding debate where, you know, why are people interested in AI in the first place? It's because they, you know, the idea that humans want to build robots that are like them, that can reason, that can be intelligent, right? And so obviously people define AGI differently, but generally speaking, AGI is the ability, you know, of a computer algorithm, of an AI algorithm to perform tasks, you know, as a human, at the level of a human. Um, and that is, that seems incredibly difficult. And if you kind of like rewind back maybe 12 years or so, you know, to like the 2000s or like the late 2000s, and you go to the world's experts in AI and you say, what is it going to take guys like to build AGI? Is it, you know, can we just like add a bunch of compute and a bunch of data and that's all it's going to take? They would look at you like you're crazy. They're like, we don't know. We can't even like define consciousness or know what it is or can't, can hardly define intelligence. And, you know, to do tasks at the level of a human, we think there's going to be so much complexity to that algorithm. We don't even, we haven't even invented it yet. It's going to take a hundred years and probably more. Right. And so this is what they would say. And then there's like a smaller group of people like 10 years ago who are like, you know what? It's really much simpler than that. Brains are neural networks and a neural network is a model of the brain. And if a human can translate languages, you know, between each other, that's sort of an existence proof that neural networks can do that. But we don't, we don't acquiesce um, how powerful and intelligent neural networks could be simply because we don't have networks that are big enough that are like even begin to approach the size and number of neurons of a human brain. And so there's like this group of people. One of them, of course, is Ilya Sutskever, who is the chief scientist of OpenAI these days, who bets on, um, on neural network, big neural networks being intelligent. And of course, also at that time, what starts to happen is that compute starts to become more efficient. GPUs come to the market. GPUs become more powerful. GPUs are clustered. And for the first time ever, like, like the big breakthrough was like AlexNet, which Ilya worked on, right? There's this big breakthrough that actually neural networks can do a fantastic job of like classifying images and giving you like descriptions of what's in that image. And it was just so incredible, so amazing, and so much more powerful than everything that came before that a lot of people started to believe, you know, that if you actually take neural networks and you add a lot of compute and you give them a lot of data, you can squeeze out a bunch of intelligence. And so for the next, you know, 10 years up until now, I think what's been happening is a lot of, you know, some people, especially OpenAI, obviously, have been sprinting toward that thesis. And we're now starting to see the result of that and the result of that are these large foundation models image uh, generative models and and large language models that are starting to rival human work and so my my statement is that 
we can't like discount this because if this the hypothesis is is correct that we just need to you know take a simple model and give it a lot of compute give it a lot of data then we can actually go much farther from here than where we are now and the reason for that is there's a lot of gpu optimization to do there's a lot of gpu scale there's a lot of computation scale in general there's a lot of things we can do with transformers which are the models that are responsible you know for these breakthroughs um, and there's a lot of just kind of data optimizations and other optimizations that we can do to make LLMs much, 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 much more intelligent than they are today. And there are people like, you know, Eliezer Yudkovsky, who believe that to such an extent that they're actually worried that these things will become so intelligent, they'll become dangerous. And I'm a little bit more moderate on that. But let me pause there. So that's what I mean in my first point. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really, really good context. And I think that really nicely takes us into, and, and you're kind of hinting at this, your second point right. around these things becoming much more intelligent quickly, which to your point about Eliezer also, um, who <laughs> recently went on the Bankless podcast and had quite a doomsday episode. Um, right. But but basically calling for, you know, the um, or him and other people for a variety of reasons, calling for sort of the uh, pausing of training these models and things, kind of implying that, like, ultimately we're getting towards this, like, terrible end state where AI completely takes over. Um, and to your point that you just made, it seems like you're a little bit less doomsday about some of these pieces. Yeah, so if you look at my point number three here, I say, you know, I think that AI doomsday scenario is not AIs murdering humans, but rather private companies sucking up all of our data using AI. Um, and, you know, I guess where I'm, what I'm saying is that we might just be like looking for the danger in the wrong place. Like, like mm. there's, there's some... There's some opportunity for OpenAI to be just so popular and have, you know, so unquestionably the best, you know, kind of LLM, you know, chat GPT assistant product that it just creates a game theory where, you know, if you're a writer, but you're not using, you know, chat GPT five or whatever. You're right. Your blog posts are not going to be as engaging as your competitor writers. And so it, it like creates this game theory where like to be competitive, everyone has to get onto AI or risk becoming, you know, kind of obsolete. And in that world, if that AI is provided by a single company or a private company or just a few private companies, then I think there's this danger that we have no choice but to like give them all of our data. And of course, you and I, Chase, are in Web3, right? And so we really don't like that from a Web3 perspective. We think data should be self-sorry. Mm. Um, yeah, I think this is a... This to me is like a, a little bit more of a um, tactical, I suppose, or maybe like human-centered approach where it's like there is still maybe, <laughs> I hope, a choice on whether or not to engage in these systems and, and provide our data and all of these things. 
Um, and you go on to talk about where Web3 fits into this. And, and I want to dive into that. But before we even do, um, when you say, you know, the the doomsday scenario is not AI murdering humans, but instead these private companies sucking up all of the data. Um, do you imagine that as a mechanism for um, the development of AGI, where it's like if we can avoid these these models sucking up all of our data and just completely saying goodbye to our uh, control and, and sovereignty, um, if we can avoid that, do you think we avoid uh, the development of AGI, or do you think like the development of AGI is inevitable and it's kind of just a matter of how much control we have? Like I'm I'm curious what that where that fits into this development of AGI. It, no, I, I think I think it's orthogonal to the development of AGI. I think AGI will be developed like regardless of how AI is delivered to people. And this is more of a this is more of a distribution question. Like how do people use AI? What AIs do they have access to? I mean, let's think about this a little bit. So um like there's some world where, you know, a, again, a single private company has the world's most powerful model that they keep proprietary, that we don't know how it works, that we don't know how it's aligned. And that model, you know, imposes like some kind of single narrative view of the world, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of where we are with OpenAI today in the sense that when OpenAI say they want to deliver a safe model, that safety is defined by kind of a single, rather small group of people. And by keeping it proprietary, this is another thing that I kind of think about a lot. You know, when you tell someone like, you know, we're, we're keeping this model safe, you know, for you, we're aligning it for you. And you're a big private company. You're kind of saying like, I think alignment can be solved by, you know, 50 people that work at this corporation, you know, in a private manner. And what you're not saying is like, hey, I should open source this AI so that like a thousand people can work on the problem of alignment or 10,000 people can work on the problem of alignment. And arguably it'll, it'll get solved better, in my opinion, if it's open. And, mm -hmm. and so th there's also another view here of like, of like, what is the model saying to you? Right. Like, like, does it have a political bias? And if it has a political bias, which direction and which politics, right, is it biasing you toward? And can we honestly say that in a world where kind of legacy media, I feel like is being eroded and a lot of those institutions in many ways are failing. And we're also seeing the rise of the Internet, the rise of the individual creator the rise of the influencer, the rise of podcasters such as yourself. It's no longer, you know, the world that I grew up in in the 90s where it's like the single narrative, you know, mainstream media kind of world. It's a world of many narratives. And so can we honestly say that the best configuration for large language models and other AIs in that world is a single narrative configuration? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Hmm. In the same way that, like, you know, um, monetary systems have a bias, you know, the dominance of the U.S. dollar has a, this is what it's reminding me of, obviously it's not the same, but, like, 
the dominance of the U.S. dollar has um, a bias and has an impact. And to, uh, I don't want to conflate economic systems with intelligence systems because obviously they're very different, but it has these weird unintended consequences by um, forcing the adoption of an underlying system that is sort of intended to be uniform when each little pocket and niche and geographic area really needs to have its own ability to like tweak the physics basically of the system. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking about kind of a process of decentralization in a way, right? And, and like my position is generally that we, you know, with respect to AI and LLMs is that they are, they should be aligned to be your assistant and they shouldn't be politically charged, you know, to some predefined thing. They should be assisting you in doing the thing that you're doing and, and trying to achieve the goals that you're trying to achieve. Um, and that's why I think they should be open. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think this gets to your... Oh, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say one, one, one other thing, and this maybe like helps us get into kind of the Web3 view a little bit. But after OpenAI launched Dolly 2, which is the text-to-image AI in January of 2022, in August of 2022, a company called Stability.ai launched also a generative image model called Stable Diffusion, and this model was completely open and completely free to use. The model weights were open source. That's a period of time of about seven months. And that is not a long time for a model to be to go from like closed and proprietary to fully open and open source. If you compare it to what came before, like what came before in AI is that you know, Google would announce some, you know, crazy new model and it would take years for something equivalent to come onto the market. With Dolly, it took six months. And with these LLMs, excuse me, with these LLMs, it's now taking an ever more shorter period of time to go from, you know, like the open AI GPT-3 to something equivalent an LLM that you can run on your desktop for free on your Mac M1 GPU. Um, in other words, that time to openness is becoming smaller and smaller and smaller and going to zero. And this actually gives me a lot of positive feelings and, and kind of hope for the world in the sense that I, you know, I like, I like AI. I like what OpenAI has done to chat GPT. I'm a user. But I also want to have this alternative where I have a model running on my desktop and I can do whatever I want with it. I think that is Mm. fundamental to digital freedom and it is a fundamentally important kind of primitive like of Web3, of the Web3 approach to this. So my middle of the bell curve question for you on this, and then we'll get into some of the more specific like thesis around Web3 and um, open public goods and things is like, and I think this is easily answerable. I don't think this is actually a good uh, rebuttal to this, but it does seem like some of the power of having these models as more centralized models is that like open AI can use the outputs of 
GPT or Dolly or whatever else um, as training inputs. And mm-hmm. if you have this level of sovereignty and, you know, running this stuff locally, I would imagine that you don't have that. And so I'm curious what that feedback cycle, what the impact on that feedback cycle is. Well, I would actually argue that if your models are open, you actually get more feedback and more innovation because look at, um, look at the development that happened in stable diffusion, you know, since that August when it was released, I mean, what happened was immediately, um, everyone started to integrate it everywhere. So suddenly like as a product, it became widely available. Whereas Dolly was something that was like not widely available. And in fact, it was gate kept from the vast majority of people for like many, many months. Uh, I think it's a little bit better now, but um, there was a huge amount of innovation that happened. I mean, I, like I was looking at software that took the model and incorporated it into kind of a desktop application that you can now run on your, on your Mac. You know, I, I probably generated like thousands of works of art, like from, from that uh, application, which is called diffusion B by the way. Um, you know, there's people who took the model and improved it. Like, like in the LLM world, there's a project called GPT for all. And what they mm-hmm. did was they took, um, kind of a less powerful model than GPT. And they had this like clever way of like fine tuning it on data that actually came from GPT. But the result was a model that performed at a similar level to like, I think it was GPT 3.5 or something, but it was like a much smaller model. It could fit on your computer, right? And so like the, the act of having these things open, you know, creates all kinds of free market opportunities for fine tuning, for alignment, for feedback, for, you know, making these things more accessible on smaller devices, on personal devices. And I, I don't think it takes away from, from it at all. I think the open approach actually adds a lot of richness and, um, an opportunity to, you know, to this innovation. Mm. Yeah. And I think this really nicely takes us into your final point in this like stake in the ground on AI that you, that you had, which is that AI models need to be open public goods and open source and that Web3 primitives um, will basically help make this happen. So I would love for you to paint a picture of what that looks like. I think you're kind of hinting at it now, um, Mm -hmm. but I feel like a a broad strokes of what you think that would look like would be really helpful. Well, let me let me sort of let me paint for you first a picture of where we are today. Right. Today, there is a there's a kind of pipeline that produces these models. What does that pipeline look like? Well, obviously it starts with some really smart people who know neural networks, they know math, they know the dark art of computing and fitting these models and training them and creating inference on them. Um, it has data, like large buckets of data. You might've heard that GPT was trained on like something akin to like all of the public data on the internet. There's also many open source uh, pieces of data that models are both proprietary and, and, and open get trained on. And those are things like the data sets created by Leon or Luther AI or the pile, or, you know, they're the, these giant, giant like image caches, right? This is all like data that is 
absolutely crucial to creating AIs because if you don't know, you don't have good data, clean data, well-labeled data, labeled by people who actually know what they're doing, you're not going to get the same great results that, that you get. And so that's sort of the data component. And then there's this computation component, right? Like one of the things about these big models, obviously, is that you need to have an enormous computation to make them happen. Like the model itself might not actually be that big. It could be like a few gigabytes, but to compute it, I've heard a figure that you actually, like the infrastructure needed to compute it takes about 10 to $15 billion to set up. The calculation itself might be, you know, or the computation itself might be like tens of millions of dollars, but the infrastructure needed to do that computation is insanely, insanely expensive. Then there's, once you have the model, you have to make an API so people can use it. In other words, you have to produce model outputs, which is called inference, but you have to make that API available like OpenAI is doing, for example, and like Stability is doing with, you know, their models. Um, so that people can build on this stuff and actually create products. And then the last piece of the pipeline is commercialization. Like now that we have AI, now that we can generate images and we can have a digital assistant, um, what do we actually do with that? Like, do we create a digital law firm? Do we create a digital diagnosis tool? Do we have a writing assistant and so on and so forth? So that entire pipeline pretty much is owned by big tech today. From the, from the data to the people who know how to work with the data and work with the models, to the compute infrastructure, to the servicing of that or the serving of that model. And most of the money-making commercialization is also you know, things like OpenAI, right? Um, and so now we go to Web3. So why, what can Web3 do here? Well, I believe that Web3 will provide the primitives that will make every single part of that pipeline open. So that means like taking these data sets and making them not just like publicly accessible, like we have publicly accessible data sets today, but making them governable, such as with DAOs and giving a business model to that governance so that the data set can be free, but the governance of that data set is still very valuable. And that solves a lot of problems, for example, for creators who have had some kind of copyright kind of concerns and issues with uh, training data, for example. And then I think like in the compute section of the pipeline, there is a lot of opportunity to do decentralized computation. I think that decentralized networks for computation as infrastructure can grow bigger and more powerful than what Google and Amazon can individually, you know, sort of turn around and afford. And I, and I say that recognizing that like in a decentralized context, it's also like quite challenging to do something like model training and we can get into that. But I think what, what that does is it creates the ability for communities, for example, crowdfund models, and we can even crowdfund models that are bigger and more powerful than, than GPT potentially. Um, and finally, like, I think a lot of commercialization around AI is going to be actually like, not that valuable. Like I've created 
<laughs> I created like a prompt for GPT the other day that teaches me Spanish. Like I live in Miami, right? And I'm like learning Spanish. And I was like, I want this, I want this chat assistant to like talk to me and have a conversation in Spanish. And whenever I say something in Spanish and get something wrong, I want it to correct me. Um, and that works like exceptionally well. I don't feel like Duolingo at this point in my kind of Spanish journey um, is actually going to do better at teaching me Spanish than something like that. And this thing is essentially free. So I, you know, I think a lot of products that we pay for today, once you throw AI into the mix, are going to be like less valuable and it will need, you know, things like Web3 to make sense. Hmm. Yeah, that last point kind of reminds me of, um, this is a whole different can of worms we don't have to get into, but um you know, if everything has AI as the back end, you sort of run into a similar challenge that I think a lot of Web3 consumer apps have run into, which is just like, you can always spin up a new front end to do the same damn thing. Um, but that's a whole other can of worms. So you, you called out three like pieces that I think are really interesting here. So the first is you have this um, open set of data for AI to be trained on. And so you you sort of posit that then the governance over that data is actually valuable. Um, and then the second point is this idea of like decentralized networks for computation and um, mm -hmm. potentially, you know, things like crowdfunding models, but also um, diving potentially into why some of those things are a little bit challenging and, and how we can get past them. And then this final piece being commercialization is not necessarily that valuable. So I want to dive into each of these. Um, the first point around data being free and open and actually governance over that data being valuable, I think is fascinating. Where my brain starts to go is, um, of course, Web3 does introduce this like sort of system of property rights in some ways. Um, but everyone needs to like agree to enforce that system, right? And so I'm curious how you think about, you know, publicly available data um, that that could certainly help with the development of this stuff, but that also like creates this weird system where um, like the ability to say I do or don't want, you know, this data to be used in this way. And to me, that would be like governance um, feels like it requires the models that are being trained to trade it, not traded, trained to abide by that request. So I, I don't know if that question makes sense, but like basically I'm curious how you think about that um, the value of governance in a world where everything is public. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, yeah, really good question. So, I mean, I guess I generally think of it as, you know, just like as a facilitation technology. So let, let's talk about like the issues in, in particular. So there, you know, there's definitely like a counter movement of artists slash creators who are very dissatisfied with the fact that some of their works might have made it into a training set of a model like Dolly 2 or like Stable Diffusion 1.5, right? And their argument is kind of like, look, you are taking my style and you're sort of, maybe you're not like directly like violating, you know, the copyright of particular works, but you're generalizing my style. And that is the thing that is my sort of competitive mode as an artist, right? Um, and you didn't ask for my permission to do that. You didn't ask to, gen, you know, to be able to generalize and then like make money off of my, my style. 
Um, and you're certainly not giving me royalties, you know, when you make money, right? And so, so for there's a group of people for whom, you know, this is a this is an issue. It's definitely like nuanced, right? We can argue about whether you know it's legal or illegal, or you know, it's definitely a gray area. But what I think is that if you take some really obvious Web three technology, such as DAOs, and in particular decentralized governance systems, then you can create, you know, a data set where an artist can opt in or opt out with their content. So there will be some artists who say, you know, I absolutely disagree with this. I don't like AI. I don't want it. To, I, want, I don't want to be in the training set. And then they will explicitly register kind of their preference. And then there will be like other artists who will say, I love AI. I think this is fascinating. I think it's kind of cool if, if you know, this model generalizes my art. I'm happy to like, you know, I'm happy to like participate in that, but it is my, what, you know, it is my business. And so I want to get a royalty whenever someone, you know, generates some art in that way from my work. And I think in both of those cases the you know, the web free technology can facilitate the rails where that makes that possible. Now, your question is also Chase about enforcements and it's a good question. And I can't say I've spent like a ton of time like thinking about it, but like other things in, you know, in tech, I, I think it will be very, or, or even like in NFT space, right? Um, what I'm saying is I, I, I think the enforcement will be very much a social phenomenon. And, and, and some examples of that from the NFT space might just be like the enforcement of royalties, right? On, on certain marketplaces. Um, there's nothing technological about smart contracts that allows them to conclusively, you know, enforce royalties. Right. Like I could always bypass the blockchain and transact off chain and like not pay road. But people who care about artists and the artists themselves and the artists' audiences and people out there in general who believe in like fairness of of these systems, you know, might choose to transact in a system that does respect royalties. Um and in fact we have some data to suggest that when um people are happier in a system because royalties are being respected, the volumes of those systems actually go up and they become more profitable. We have seen some mm. data to that effect. Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating. Like it it almost makes me imagine a world in which uh, data that's, tr sorry, models that are trained using data that isn't um, respecting the wishes of creators and stuff like that is almost like the fast fashion of AI, you know, where it's kind of like a little bit shameful to, yep. to use it. <laughs> um, but also I think like, you know, Holly Herndon and Matt Dryhurst and others have done some really interesting work here um, trying to do this. And I think um, Stability AI decided to like say, yes, we'll, we'll agree to, to train um, data sets only based on, you know, people who haven't opted out. Um, but it's definitely been fascinating to watch like this this weird dynamic where OpenAI hasn't acknowledged any of these things yet. Um, and so I'm fascinated to see how that plays out. But but I love the point around the health of these systems and volume and things like that might actually um, be impacted by whether or not you have this like. And. Yeah, yeah go ahead. 
No, I, I was just gonna I was gonna say and remember that like in these open systems where the governance is open and transparent, like I argue there's like more control, right? Like like we don't know what people at OpenAI are doing with their data sets. We don't know what the data sets are. We don't know what artists are or are not included in those data sets. But if you know, if we're participating in systems um, where we we have that transparency, then you can like vote with your well, you can vote with your feet. You can work vote with your tokens. You know, you can not support um, processes that that sort of shamefully steal, you know, let's say, content, you know, from creators um, and then use it in models, right? And so it's, it's, a, it's, it's probably not a perfect solution because there will certainly always be bad actors who will, like, do that anyway and try to make money off of it, as always happens in, you know, in the world and in crypto, as we well know. But having that transparency, I think, like, allows the people who... I guess, have their heart in the right place and want to see fair systems, like really exercise their right to have those systems. We don't have any such right with respect to OpenAI's proprietary product or any other proprietary product. Hmm. Yeah, this kind of brings me to your third point around commercialization and what that looks like, because today, like you could definitely argue that for the most part, Sometimes token holders vote based on what's healthy for the ecosystem, but you also have a lot of financially driven players who are um, thinking about governance as, you know, basically like the equivalent of running a company and who are optimizing for returns and and acting a lot more like you might see shareholders in the free market act. Um, and so it kind of makes me wonder, like, when we think about what it means to govern potentially these like larger models and networks, or maybe maybe you're not governing the model or network itself. Maybe you're sort of governing the the rules and, and the safety mechanisms that it abides by. Um, but it does kind of make me wonder like what it might look like to govern these as public goods as opposed to these like sort of corporation style um, optimizing for returns. Do you think we have the capacity as humans to to make the right decision as token holders? Well, it's a really interesting and kind of loaded question for me because, well, because um, I'm, a, I'm conceptually a huge fan of the concepts of DAOs and decentralized governance systems, but I'm also very practical and eyes wide open about the fact that you know, the systems to that effect that are actually in production are nowhere near, like anywhere near like maturity, right? And mm -hmm. I'm not sure that they, I'm not sure that they function well or, or actually like do the things that they say or that we want them to do, right? And so I'll maybe like, let me, let me make that a little bit more explicit. Um, I think that this, I think digital governance, like basically the, the idea that you can code governance systems on blockchains, like within smart contracts, is a completely fascinating idea. Because what it does is it turns this, this idea of like governance into software. And when you do that, it really allows you to 
experiment with governance systems like much, much faster and, and uh, like in a much more, much bigger design space than what we've been able to do in the past, right? If we look in the past, what are the governance systems mostly look like? Well, they're mostly governance and they're governments, excuse me, and, and corporate governance. And those things just tend to be not that diverse. But if we have this wide design space of governance systems, then I think like we could come up with like really new systems and systems that work well, and extremely well for like particular purposes, systems that are more fair, you know, systems that have better checks and balances, you know, things like that. But the reality of, of Web3 and blockchain today is that, you know, the average government, centralized governance system is just a one token, one vote system. And it has all these, like, it, it hasn't made use of that design space, like, almost at all. And, and it actually works quite poorly in some sense because the idea is to sort of create a wide distribution and, like, more, like, direct democracy. But the practice of these systems is that they, like, centralize around a couple of whales, right? And, and by the way, I'm not saying that that's necessarily bad. I'm actually in the camp of people who think that certain governance systems are better served by systems that have this like steep power law of voting power. Like for example, mm. um, I don't know, GitHub repositories. Like you always have that one or two engineers that have put in an order of magnitude more PRs than everybody else. And they know the code base better than everyone else. And it's like natural that they should have more, more governance power. Um, but anyway, so what I'm saying is I'm like very like optimistic that we can apply these kind of concepts, but I'm also very realistic about the fact that we're not there. But mm. conceptually, when I think about public goods, and by the way, I did a whole like one hour podcast um, in the past on this about blockchain public goods, look it up. Um, but I'm just fascinated by the idea that like you can, you can create a product which curates some resource and that resource can be completely free, like for example, AI data sets. But the governance of that, of that data set or of that process, whatever, or that resource, right, um, is still very valuable. And, and the reason, one of the reasons I think that is I think back to, uh, I forget what it was now, probably over 10 years ago now, but when like Oracle purchased Java, the programming language, Java is free. Anyone who can, you know, go on the internet can go download like a Java VM and code in Java, no problem. But there's a reason why Oracle wanted to buy it. Like they had a lot of software built on it. Um, and by buying it, they could exercise probably more governance power around the features of the language. And that mm. sort of impacted the bottom line. And the same you know, scenario, I think, happens in AI data sets. I think mm. like the governance is powerful because it allows the contributors of data to control how their data is used and how it is monetized and whether they get a royalty if it's used for commercial purposes. And so that's why I think it's valuable. Mm. Yeah, this is interesting because it's kind of, I don't think I fully understood what this could look like until now, which is in it's almost like um 
if you kind of accept that, like, even if even if you accept the data is going to be used, um, there's something powerful in saying, okay, fine. Companies are going to use these publicly available data sets to train models, you know, network states, like all of these different um, entities might use this publicly available data. Um, but having the ability to govern almost when you say how it's used to me, it, it becomes like the rule sets or the things that we agree to or the standards that we mm -hmm. agree to or whatever around how that data is used. Um, I think is fascinating and, and is kind of starting to click for me because then it becomes like, okay, cool. We've all agreed that like royalties should be enforced. And obviously then you start to have these weird, again, game theory issues of like, what is the enforcement system for all of this stuff? Um, but I do think this idea of having like this, this entity, um, or, or governed, I don't even know how to describe it, but um, this governing body that says, okay, cool, here are the rules that we've decided on, um, makes a ton of sense. And then it makes me wonder, this is all interesting, but like, how does this shit actually happen? You know, like, do you think it's going to be a Web3 company? Like, I don't know, is it going to be a consortium, which those never seem to work out that well? Like, how do you think this is actually going to come to fruition? Well, we, we do see a trend in Web3 of something and, and actually even like a little bit beyond Web3 as well, of something called data unions. Like for example, at CoinFund, we're invested in a company called Demo. And what Demo does is it allows the owners of a vehicle, especially electric vehicles, to take some of the, you know, voluminous data that that vehicle generates, like it generates sort of mileage and um, data about how the battery performs and many, many other things, right? And it allows the user to reclaim that data and then join a data union where the aggregate kind of statistics around the electric vehicle data are quite valuable for applications. Like, for example, you can, you can see someone building uh, an insurance product based on this car data. You could see people building a product that allows you to connect your Tesla and estimate the market value of it just by looking at some of the parameters that the car, um, you know, the car kind of emanates. Um, and so there's, that's just one example of a data union, but there's many other examples of data unions. Um, there's a push for sort of consumer data to be unionized, right? Like you probably heard about a year ago, Apple cut off, um, advertiser IDs and, and now, um, merchants who want to advertise to users they kind of need to get their zero party data and their preferences like directly from them and they need to like pay them for that data um so there's a lot of companies in web3 and web2 building like e-commerce um kind of zero party data products um there's things like oh uh there's a company called hive mapper which you might have heard about which allows you to you know, drive your car around and take pictures of the road and like contribute to um, the building of a map and on and on and on. And so, you know, if we believe that this trend will continue in Web3 and beyond, you know, probably like five to 10 years from now, we're going to be living in a world of data unions where individual people 
can really monetize their own proprietary data. And of course, in that world, AIs are a natural consumer or AI training processes or AI fine tuning processes are natural consumers of data union data. So it's almost like these two trends are kind of coming together where like, guys, we're going to own our data anyway, and we're going to govern it. And on the other hand, this is also what we want for uh, input training data to AIs. Mm. Okay. As we wrap up, I have such a, I, I know this is going to be a can of worms, so we might have to do some follow-up at some point, but there's definitely a dynamic here where like, you know, privacy by default is kind of the requirement then, right? Because if your data is publicly available already, then you have no way of saying, yeah, okay, it's fine if you use, you know, these images from my car. Like you need to have some level of privacy and saying, by default, I'm not sharing this. I'm going to choose to share it. And because I'm choosing to share it, you're going to pay me. Um, or some level of agreement there, which kind of makes me wonder when I think about if I'm a big AI company and I'm like, okay, cool. I'm seeing the rise of data unions and data unions are going to cost, they're basically going to cost me an ass load of money when I'm already getting all this shit for free. You know, I'm getting all this data for free. Why would I go and and allow that to happen? And so it kind of makes me wonder if I think we've totally already seen like a war on data. You know, tons of Web2 companies make a lot of money off of selling user data. Um, it makes me wonder if that's only going to like heighten this sort of like. I'm, I'm using very charged language, but like war, um, because ultimately that does threaten some of the the innovation on these things. Right. Like you already mentioned, it costs so much money to train these these models. And I would imagine having to pay even more for data and creating a standard around that is is going to make that exponentially increase and when it's already a huge number. So I'm curious how you think about that dynamic. Well, I mean, I think the truth is always somewhere in between in the sense that, you know, the nice thing about self-sovereign data is just, it's just one way to approach data. Like it's not mutually exclusive to open public data. I think it's just kind of a tool in our toolbox to monetize the really proprietary, really private, and, and ultimately like really valuable data for companies right, that we own and they love to abuse. So I think that in the future, there will absolutely be free, open, public, no strings attached, you know, MIT license kind of data sets. And I also think that there will be very rich and comprehensive data sets that people need to pay for because, you know, this is like the aggregate of a lot of people sharing some very private information. Mm. Um, and I just, and, and then there's a spectrum in between, right? So I just think that we will be living in a more efficient world that can support like all the data types appropriately. Mm. And then I would imagine as we wrap up, what's on chain is of course an interesting question here. Um, I've heard a lot about like, you know, zero knowledge proofs being an interesting way to um, allow a lot of this data to like exist on chain and have some of the benefits of that while also avoiding this issue of like giving AI all of our data. Um, and so I would imagine that you apply a similar 
approach when thinking about data that's on chain, which, of course, if you don't treat it specially, is just publicly available and also really well labeled and documented for the most part. Um, do you kind of see data that's on chain in the same way where it's like some things are going to be on chain? totally open and public. Some things are going to be, you know, encrypted. Some things are going to have zero knowledge proofs as, as their encryption method. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, you're talking about the implementations of sort of the spectrum that I was just mentioning, right? I think block, like open, global, public blockchains are really great for, you know, open, global, public data. <laughs> but mm -hmm. it's also, you know, it's a very like, it's a very heavy-handed kind of approach. It's like very open and it's very like immutable. Um, and like today, for example, we put our bank account just pseudonymously on open public blockchains. And that's been like a cool experiment. But honestly, like, do we really think that that should be the way that we share all of our financial data going forward? I strongly doubt it. I think in the future we will have, you know, kind of, privacy shielded multisigs and that's fine. Yeah. Well, some maybe some portion of our data will be for financial data will be open. Like if I'm supporting a um I don't know, fundraiser for um, you know, for a cause that I really care about, I want that to be open. I want to share that with the world. I want to get other people involved. I have no problem being public about that. But if I'm, you know, buying a house and I don't necessarily want people to know where I'm buying it, um, I'll probably do that in a more private way. Yeah. You don't want your PFP to be immediately easy to associate with all the money that you have? <laughs> oh, by the way, NFTs are like super privacy destroying uh, technology. Mm. So be careful. Mm. Yes. I'm, I'm sure that's like a whole other, it's probably where the whole other episode, but Jake, this was <laughs> so wonderful. I really appreciate your thinking on um, all things Web3, but have been enjoying your your tweets going um, sort of deep into a lot of different AI and LLM rabbit holes. Um, where can people find you, learn more about the work that you're doing at CoinFund, all of the things? Absolutely. Um, so find me on Twitter at J-B-R-U-K-H. Find CoinFund at CoinFund.io. And we have a blog also, blog.coinfund.io. By the way, you should read our post from last September called Open Neural Networks, the Intersection of Web3 and AI, if you want to have a deeper dive into some of the topics we talked about today. Beautiful. I will link it in the show notes. Jake, thank you so much for coming on the show. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Chase. If you like what you heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast. I always forget to do this for podcast I like, but it's actually super useful. Also, if anything resonated with you or if you want to continue the conversation, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Chaser Chapman. I absolutely love talking about these things. Thanks again for listening.